0: Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 36 Conrad's Folly. So, we ended off last time talking about the political and social changes which faced Austria Hungary as the war entered its second year. Crippling losses on the battlefield, underscored by growing unrest across the home front, had brought the empire to the brink of disaster. After two years of costly campaigns, the cheers and sabre-rattling which once echoed throughout Vienna and Budapest were a bygone memory. People were hungry and sick, and the once unified populace began to turn on one another. Food shortages, skyrocketing prices, and the seemingly unsympathetic administration created a dangerous mix of anger and discontent, threatening to explode into full-out revolt. With policing demands at an all-time high, desperate local authorities were forced to turn to the war ministry for assistance. To subdue any dissension, thousands of infantry redeployed from the battlefields took up guard duties in the urban centers. The presence of these troops now patrolling the streets was a further shock to the people who once celebrated the outbreak of war. But the most haunting of reminders was save for Vienna, where thousands had packed city square in August 1914, All that was left to greet them now was a lone machine gun nest perched atop city hall. Yes, the dark days were upon them, and it was about to get much worse. Although these rumblings could not have come as welcome news, the simple fact remained that Austria-Hungary still had a war to win, and the man in charge of that war, Konrad von Hutzendorf, remained undeterred to see it through. With Russia and Serbia no longer posing a threat, for the first time, Konrad could concentrate his forces for the knockout blow which would soothe the empire's ruffled feathers. His target? Italy, of course. The prospect of a final reckoning with the Italians was alluring for both historical and contemporary reasons. Italian unification had been achieved at Austrian expense back in the 1860s and 70s, when Cavour teamed up with the French to boot the Habsburgs out of the peninsula. Henceforth, Italian nationalists dreamt of further expansion into Austrian-held territory. Their objectives, Tyrol, Istria, and Dalmatia along the Adriatic coast, made up what Italian nationalists coined unredeemed Italy. In Rome, the government headed by Prime Minister Antonio Salandra had led his nation to war fully expecting that the Italian population of these lands would effect to their banner without a shot being fired. But after the opening battles of the Isonzo, beginning on the 23rd of June, it was soon clear that Salandra's government had overstepped its cause. The unredeemed Italians, who were equally Croatian and Slovenian, were less than enthused about their supposed liberation where Italian leadership foresaw mass desertions and mutinies undermining the Habsburg war effort, no such advantage came their way. For those caught in the middle, exchanging one crown for another meant little difference. To them, and indeed for many throughout the empire, Italy was an aggressive enemy bent on territorial acquisition, and with a common border along the Alps meant it was a defensive war against a foreign invader. Rome was at the doorstep, and Vienna needed to send it packing. Before we get into the main event of this week's discussion, which is Conrad's ludicrous attack from Tyrol, I want to spend just a little bit of time catching up to what's transpired in the Italian theatre. That way, we can better understand the context of Conrad's plan and why he felt such a ridiculous operation could work. But once we've fleshed that out and we cover the opening acts of the offensive, we'll need to swing ourselves west and go over an important development unfolding at Verdun, where things were about to go very poorly for the French army. So To begin, I want to start by talking about the type of terrain which the Italians and Austrians found themselves fighting through, which is markedly different than one would commonly expect from a First World War battlefield. It goes without saying that the most powerful images of the Great War come from the experiences on the Western Front. The mud, the trenches, and the barbed wire are what commonly pop into people's imagination when discussions of the conflict arise. But for the Italians and Austrians stationed along the Zanzo frontier, The battlefields of Western Europe could not have been more alien. While operations in the West lived and died on logistics and strategic planning, it was the mountainous terrain of the Alps, above all else, which directly influenced the ebb and flow of battle. In short, the Italian front was one of the war's most gruesome and unforgiving theaters. Reduced to just an 80 kilometer plateau, sandwiched between the Adriatic coast and the Julian Alps, the two sides engaged one another in a brutal mountainous campaign. Two days after his nation entered the war, the Italian King Victor Emmanuel gave the following acknowledgment of the difficulties that lay ahead, saying, quote, "Favored by the terrain and by careful preparations, the Austrians will put up a tough resistance. But your unquenchable dash will, without doubt, overcome them." End quote. Emmanuel's words may have been encouraging prior to the first Azonto battle, but soon after General Cadona sent the first wave of troops into the valley, any optimism was quickly dashed. The battlefield was unlike anything experienced in the war thus far, a howling wilderness of stones as sharp as knives, according to Luigi Valari, where troops dug into the chalky rock desperate for any kind of shelter. Before reaching their forward positions, troops faced an exhausting trek through the inhospitable terrain, where they were subjected to all sorts of miseries, both natural and man-made. High winds, frostbite, avalanches, and steep cliffs which threatened to topple anyone to the jagged rocks below claimed thousands of men on both sides. Once reaching the firing line, little protection was offered. There were no sandbags, no trenches, or barbed wire. While men on the western front could at the very least dig for shelter, the bedrock of the Alps allowed no such luxury. Trenches were little more than shallow ditches rimmed with rocks for added protection, or for officers hollowed out cliff faces. Because of this, Hygiene was considerably worse than in any other theater. The air was contaminated by smoke, gas, and dust, and since no latrines or burial grounds existed, the stink of excrement and decaying flesh seeped into the men's rations and clothing. Fresh water was a luxury which needed to be hauled up from the valley on the backs of mules, and disease soon ran rampant, with thousands dying of hypoxia and typhoid. Of those infected, a young Benito Mussolini, who caught typhoid fever in November 1915. Between periods of fighting, the Zanzo Front was terrifying enough, as any misstep could send one plummeting to their death. Keeping the men supplied was also problematic. Artillery pieces needed to be disassembled and hauled up piecemeal, sometimes at 90 degree angles by teams of exhausted troops. Obviously, there were no rail lines, and automobiles could not safely navigate the passes, so horses and mules became the go-to mode of transportation. Then there was the enemy who was never more than fifty yards away and always watching. Movement in the day was thus strictly forbidden, and resupply efforts can only happen under nightfall, adding a new level of tension as torchlights invited all sorts of harassing fire. But most macabre of all were the sounds of battle which echoed and roared throughout the mountains. Shell impacts, gunshots, and the cries of the wounded were magnified through the chasms, producing an unholy sound which forever haunted at veterans. Instead of shells exploding into the mud of Flanders, impacts were a mix of steel and razor-sharp limestone, which killed and dismembered anything in its path. In fact, I read a report which said that casualties caused by shell splinters increased by 60% on the Italian front. The reverberations of such awesome displays also brought upon natural threats in the form of avalanches or rockfalls, which could bury an entire section of the line. Indeed, it's been recorded that gunners on both sides would purposely overshoot their target intending to crush them under the weight of the mountain. So you might be asking, why is all this important? Well, for a few reasons. The first is to put to bed any sneers you might have heard about the Italian fighting man. Given the conditions he was tasked to fight, it speaks volumes about the fortitude of the Italian soldier. Drop a British or German unit in that sector and I don't think they would fare much better. Secondly, is to point out that neither Cadorna nor Conrad had any choice of battlefield. While the topography dictated against all common sense, the narrow Isonzo Corridor was the natural place for the two armies to meet. While the Austrians enjoyed the benefit of a defensive war, the Italians faced the burden of dislodging a well-fortified enemy. Salandra's government had promised great territorial rewards as the prize of Italy's belligerency, and thus the responsibility of delivering those promises fell directly on the military. From June 1915, Cardona had pushed his army exceedingly harder than any other belligerent, something which often gets overlooked in the histories. In less than eight months of fighting, the Italian army had attempted five major offensives into the nightmare of the Isonzo. By comparison, the French and British attempted just two Western Front offensives over the same period. Each time the Italians marched into the Isonzo, the results were often the same. There were some small, local victories. The capture of a ridge or small town here or there, but from a strategic picture, the Front remained as stagnated as it had been since the previous year. But throughout the winter of 1915 to 1916, there seems to have been a grudging acceptance among Italian leadership that the campaign will require more resources than previously thought. General Cadorna has spent the winter at his headquarters in Udini, just west of the front itself, poring over maps and battle orders of the previous campaigns. Having agreed to the collective strategy laid out at Joseph Joff's Chantilly conference that December, Cardona was compelled to admit that Italy lacked the skills and technical know-how to sustain prolonged attrition. As we discussed before, Italy entered the conflict unprepared to meet the demands of total war. A rotten officer corps, which was seen as little more than a dumping ground for troublesome sons from high-ranking families, maintained order by handing out draconian punishments for the slightest infraction. As historian John Gooch criticized, the Italian military met no institutional or intellectual obstruction. The theories of Clausewitz, for example, had not appeared in translation until the late 1890s, and had yet to influence a new generation of officers. Cadorna remained a disciple of the Ilan School, which dictated that the fighting spirit remained the decisive factor on the battlefield. Indeed, this mindset was popular among many European leaders, but the first two years of fighting had done much to shatter the zeitgeist. Morale, of course, remained crucial. But the First World War battlefield required skills and equipment at a rate never before seen. Wireless communication, aerial photography and map reading, the procurement of resources, range finding and gun trajectory, meant that relying on a lawn was no longer feasible. Operations needed to be fed with an uninterrupted supply of resources, which required detailed logistics throughout the military bureaucracy. While leaders like Joseph Joff, for example, who remained the last of the pre-war army chiefs still employed by 1916, had come to recognize the changing nature of warfare, Cardona's military regime had largely ignored the developments of the Western Front, as well as the Austrian disastrous Carpathian expedition during the war's first winter. Upon joining the Entente, Italy could count just 618 machine guns in her arsenal. By comparison, Russia had 4,000. There were a few mortars, but virtually no heavy artillery to speak of. This was as much an indicator of bureaucratic negligence as it was Cadorna's stubborn belief in outdated doctrine. To prepare for the upcoming 1916 campaigning season, Italy underwent a re-equipment process over the winter. Naval ordnance and coastal defense batteries were stripped of their cannons, producing an additional 500 field guns soon en route to the front. Similar to the case in Russia, Italy's allies provided both financial and military assistance, with British, French, and American-made weapons arriving in ports over the winter. On top of munitions, the army continued to grow, with conscription and early call-ups, expanding the battalion count from 250 in 1915 to 372 by early 1916. This build-up, which was beginning to round itself out by the summer of 1916, was well-timed. Cardona was stubborn as all hell, but he was also acutely aware of his nation's position. After the defeat of Serbia, Cardona knew there would be nothing stopping the Austrians from unleashing a massive assault against the Italian lines, And he had rightfully ensured that his troops were, at the very least, better equipped to deal with the expected blow. But the question of where Austria Hungary was going to strike remained an open question, which no one could predict with any certainty. In his meetings with the Allied liaisons, Cardona had little reason to expect the Austrian attack to fall anywhere besides the Zonzo sector. After all, this is where all the other battles had been fought. The idea of the Austrians opening a new front particularly in the area of South Tyrol, was dismissed out of hand. But the Austrians were not discouraged, and Konrad von Hutzendorf was hell bent on opening a new front in the area south of Tyrol. For Konrad von Hutzendorf, the prospect of dealing Italy a fatal blow was as much a personal vendetta as it was national survival. Conrad's hatred of the Italians stemmed back a couple of years when he served as a divisional commander at the port city of Trieste. In early nineteen oh two, labor unrest had threatened to plunge the city into chaos. Conrad, whose father had suffered a career-ending injury at the hands of the mob during the 1848 revolts, responded by declaring martial law and deploying his troops against the striking workers. On November 14th, 1902, violent clashes between the workers and soldiers took place throughout the city, culminating with Conrad's troops opening fire on the crowd, killing at least eight workers and wounding another 25. The violence escalated over the next few days with another 30 or so civilians being wounded. Although the strikers consisted of Slovenes, Croatians, and Italians, Conrad always held the Italian government responsible, whose complacency he felt allowed the agitation to spread. Interestingly enough, it was Conrad's Italophobia which brought him to the attention of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who would later see Conrad appointed Chief of Staff in 1907. In the years prior to the war, Conrad had proposed attacking Italy no less than on four separate occasions. Once during the Bosnian annexation crisis, again during Italy's invasion of Libya, and twice more during the Balkan Wars and July crisis. The option of attacking Italy in July 1914 was negated once Russia threw her hat into the ring. Although Conrad had to wait nearly a decade for his opportunity, his plans for attacking Italy remained unchanged. Contingency War Plan I As it was known in Vienna, abandoned all finesse and was designed to deal a blow which Italy would never recover. Conrad envisioned striking through a massive flanking maneuver. Striking out of the Tyrol salient, 14 Austro-Hungarian divisions, composed from the empire's elite fighting units, including Alpine regiments and experienced divisions from Glacia, would drive southeast from Trentino. With the bulk of Cardona's army concentrated in the Isonzo, only the Italian 1st Army commanded by Lieutenant General Roberto Brusati, stood to defend against the Austrian battering ram. Once Brusati's positions were overrun, the army would infiltrate the Venetian plain, seize the crucial railway hub at Padua, and hook towards Venice in the Adriatic coast. Such a stroke would isolate Cardona's army in the northeast, leaving the peninsula virtually defenseless. If successful, Italy would be forced to sue for peace, allowing Austria-Hungary to dictate whatever terms they saw fit. If you need a better picture, I've posted a map on the website. Over the winter, Conrad made his rounds to drum up support for the expedition, but much to his anger found little sympathy. His failed attempts to get Falkenhayn on board are well documented. The German chief outright refused to lend any divisions and pressed forward with his own plans for Verdun. Given their frosty relationship, Conrad was not the least bit surprised. But what came as a bitter disappointment was that his own countrymen were just as reluctant. Svetisar Boarevich, the 5th army commander stationed in the Zonzo, hated the idea, since it meant he would have to weaken his garrison in support of the new front. Likewise, Grand Admiral Anton Haas, the commander of the Austro-Hungarian battle fleet stationed at Pula, refused to lend naval support, fearing that raising anchor would expose his warships to French and Italian dreadnoughts prowling the Adriatic. Conrad also found detractors in both Paul von Hindenburg and Erich von Ludendorff. The two German generals, who enjoyed better relations with Conrad through their mutual hatred of Falkenhayn, felt that the proposed plan was not worth the risk. After the Russian attack at Lake Narach, the command duo were concerned that Russia could still pose a viable threat in the east. The fact that she had attacked with 350,000 men was an ominous sign which hinted that intelligence on Russian strength was dangerously short-sighted. To the dismay of both generals, Conrad redeployed some of his best infantry to the Tyrolian front, leaving the Austrian line south of the Pripet marshes dangerously undermanned. For the Germans, Conrad's decision to leave his line thinly defended was a gamble bordering on negligence, because if by some chance the Russians attacked in that sector, there would be nothing there to stop them. But the Austrian chief had sown the seeds. and was determined to prove that he could defeat the empire's enemies without German support. The two Habsburg armies, the 9-division-strong 11th Army, commanded by Viktor Donkel von Krasnick and Hermann Kovess' 3rd Army of 5 Divisions, were to be the spearhead of the main assault. This Strafexpedition, expedition, or punitive expedition, were to advance across a 19-kilometer front, consisting of some of the most difficult terrain Southern Europe had to offer. Forbidding any flanking or feint attempts, Conrad expected his armies to act as one and use their numerical superiority to swipe the Italians from the salient. Now, it doesn't take a military genius to guess which sort of problems could arise from this. The first, of course, was the terrain, which Conrad never took into consideration. The Lucini Alps, south of Tyrol, offered the same inhospitable conditions as the Isonzo. At an average of 1,000 meters above sea level, early spring was a treacherous time. The seasonal Bora, an arctic-like wind which can reach gale force speeds, made the range virtually impassable and getting supplies forward, already problematic, would be next to impossible. A lack of rail lines meant that by March 1916, only one out of three shipments had arrived, resulting in further delays. Conrad originally tabled the offensive to begin in February, but that was soon pushed back several weeks to accommodate the supply flow. Despite all these hiccups, it did little to dampen Conrad's spirits. Although the signs were pointing towards disaster, he remained totally detached from the realities at the ground level. Indeed, his orders to Donkel and Covesse consisted of just a single piece of paper, where he made clear he expected a minimal of 12 miles marching per day, giving the infantry just 9 days to reach Venice. This of course was completely delusionary, and I can't help but question what kind of mental state he was in. Had he studied his history, he would have known that the Alpine excursions of Hannibal and Napoleon had been exceptions rather than the rule. It had taken Napoleon 11 days to traverse the passes, half the time it had taken Hannibal. This may have been all the proof Conrad needed, but considering the weight of equipment which his infantry were burdened to carry meant his armies would be moving slower than a Roman legion. The basic 10 centimeter field gun could weigh 1,350 kilograms, while the 30 centimeter behemoths weighed in at 15 times that amount. This of course saying nothing of the fact that they needed to be disassembled and hauled to new firing spots to accommodate the advancing infantry, And I'm getting exhausted just thinking about it. But if ordering his troops into nothing short of a forced march wasn't callous enough, Conrad added another layer of confusion by altering the command structure to suit his interests. On March the 25th, 1916, he extended his authority to the southwest, bypassing the current commander, Archduke Eugen. This act had left the Archduke fuming. Unlike many of his siblings. Archduke Joigen of Austria was one of the few Royalist soldiers who took their military career seriously, and having been passed over for independent command in times past, this recent slight was a tough pill to swallow. Conrad's excuse was that since Joegen was of royal blood, he lacked the necessary staff and command training, which was typical of senior officers. Conrad's insistence that he have total authority was enough to doom the operation from the start. To begin, he refused to move his headquarters closer to the front, and instead, opted to oversee things from his base at Teschen, some 600 miles away at the Czech and Polish border. What this ensured was that the flow of information would be delayed by several hours, if not more, and at no point during the planning stage did Conrad take the time to visit the front for himself. A mild winter in February had led him to believe the attack would get underway by the first week of March, yet by April, the battlefield remained under 8 feet of frozen snow. Furthermore, his senior generals were beginning to chafe under their boss's heavy-handedness. The two army commanders, Donkel von Krasnick and Kovess, were old protégés of Conrad, having served with him during his time in Trieste. But due to his absence from the front, Conrad left the day-to-day decisions to a third man, Archduke Gjøgen's former chief of staff, Alfred Krauss. The decision to place the 53-year-old Krauss in command makes sense. He was perhaps the finest tactician the Austrian army could offer. But what I find particularly dumbfounding is that Kraus was a noted critic of Conrad's generalship, and the mutual dislike between the two men had reached a boiling point on the eve of the offensive. What had happened was that on the advice of Archduke Eugen, Kraus had skewed the battle plan to ensure that one of the 11th Army's corps commanders, the future Emperor, Archduke Karl, had been given extra guns and infantry to ensure the monarchy could stake a claim in the victory. The trouble was that this had been done at the expense of Donkel's left flank. Which, for all intents and purposes, was expected to face heavier opposition than Archduke Karl. Of course, this intercommand squabbling meant little to the men who found themselves making the treacherous climb into the Alps. Although the track record of the Austro Hungarian forces was poor, they could always take solace that they had been able to keep the Italians at bay, despite being heavily outnumbered. Some of the men, particularly the Croatian and Slovenian units, whose homelands were most threatened by the Italian invasion, were excited to finally take the fight to the invaders. But upon arriving in the marshalling areas on route to the front, optimism quickly gave way to reality. Avalanches had already claimed hundreds of men as they made their way to the front. On March the 8th, an avalanche buried six Austrian watchposts and more than 100 Russian POWs who were working on the roads. Ammunition trains were late, winter equipment was nowhere to be seen, and no one had a clear idea where they were supposed to be. The Austrian rail network in Tyrol, built to handle 45 trains per day, was expected to support 1,450 in order to carry the men and their supplies to the appropriate areas. Everything was stuck in limbo, as the men shivered in their boots, wondering if the Italians were aware of their presence. As the build-up in Tyrol increased, it did not take long for the Italians to notice something was up. While Austrian forces had been trickling in since February, Cardona was unconvinced that it was anything serious. Like Conrad, Cardona was the type of man where if something interfered with his plans, then it was dismissed out of hand. But prior to the 5th Battle of the Azonzo, which began on the 11th of March, Cardona had made reinforcements available which were sent to beef up Brussati's line along the Licini Alps, bringing the 1st Army up to 114,000 men backed by 850 guns. However, after the Italian armies again failed to break through the Isonzo, reports from Tirol were becoming more serious. The Austrians, they hinted, had been mustering large deposits of manpower, some 157,000 men and 1,200 field guns. The fact that they had sat idle during the latest Zanzu offensive had further cemented that this was indeed no feint. The truth became clear on April the 26th, when troops of the Italian 1st Army intercepted an Austrian defector making his way across the lines. The soldier in question, a Czech, confirmed that a major offensive was imminent and would commence 15 hours after bombardment. The interrogating officer sent the defector onto Supreme Command, where, several hours later, air reconnaissance confirmed his report. In near panic, Cardona rushed to Brusati's position and was horrified of what he discovered. Brussati had done nothing to reinforce his lines. Instead, the general had ignored Cardona's orders and set his lines in an offensive mode. With most of his troops in forward positions, instead of shelters in the rear. Enraged at Russati's insolence, Cardona sacked the general on the spot, just one of the two hundred and seventeen officers dismissed during his time in command. And it was during this period, with the first army under a regime change, when Conrad's Straff Expedition fell. At dawn, on the morning of may fifteenth, nineteen sixteen, a barrage of one thousand guns pulverized the Italian First Army sending men scrambling to escape the maelstrom of steel and stone. The bombardment lasted several hours. Now, being on a mountainside under an artillery bombardment was a truly hellish experience, even by First World War standards. Atop the plateau on that day was Emilio Lusso, a lieutenant in the Sassari Brigade who had been transferred to Tyrol on the eve of the Austrian attack. After the war, Lusso would recount his experience in his memoir, entitled A Soldier on the Southern Front, which vividly describes the chaotic nature of alpine warfare. As the guns boomed that morning, all Luso could do was hide in whatever crevice he could find, and hope to protect himself from the whirling bits of rock. To quote a passage, the trajectory made a special noise, a gigantic rumbling which was interrupted from time to time, only to come back in an even louder crescendo, right up to the final explosion. Tornadoes of earth, rock, and body fragments flew up in the air. An earthquake was shaking the mountain. I can still remember the dominant idea of those initial minutes. More than an idea, an agitation, an instinctive impulse save yourself. Quote. Across the 20 kilometer front, Trentino was set aflame. The Austrian gunners, firing an arsenal of artillery which included heavy 305s and 420s, plus several hundred medium caliber guns captured from the Russians and Serbs, unleashed a hurricane bombardment which toppled rocks, collapsed positions, and sent men scurrying like rats. Lusso recalls several of his comrades dashing through the shellstorms, collecting handfuls of snow desperate to quench their thirst. The scent of nitrates, smoke, and dust made the men woozy. All they could do was hang on and hope that it will all end soon. As is so often the case, the initial advance went well, and it looked as though Conrad's plan would work. Although he was 600 miles removed from the battlefield, the reports which filtered across his desk were reassuring. The Italian First Army was fractured, and was retreating back to the Asiago Plateau. Given a few days, the Austrians could be at the banks of the Po River. But what these reports didn't tell him was that the army was committing a major tactical error. While Conrad was busy brainstorming the terms of Italy's surrender, the assault was beginning to lose momentum. The Italians were indeed fleeing, and by nightfall of May the 15th, the Austrians had advanced 8 kilometers towards Padua. Cadorna was so panic-stricken by the sudden advance that he nearly ordered the evacuation of the Zonzo and even contemplated flooding the Brenta River in an effort to slow the invasion. But the situation at the front told a much different story. While the center column of the Austrian attack, spearheaded by Archduke Karl's 20th Corps, managed to press the Italians back along the Asiago or Zero Plateau, netting 40,000 prisoners and 380 guns in the process, the flanking units had quickly fallen behind. Donkel's 11th army, which had attacked east of Garda, and Colvess' 3rd army to the northeast, were not following up the advance of the center column. In classic textbook fashion, Conrad had instructed Donkel and Coves not to pursue the fleeing Italians, and instead focused on consolidating the high ground before pressing on. In other words, the Austrians were climbing the mountains instead of chasing the enemy down in the valleys. Conrad, ignoring all lessons from his earlier Carpathian campaign, believe this could be done without sacrificing momentum, but the time it took for the men to traverse the ridges, while hauling 60 pounds of equipment and heavy artillery, meant that time was now being measured in days. The effect of this delay caused the axis of advance to stall, eventually settling into a salient, with the two main armies on the wings further behind the center column. Basically, the line was now in a V-shape, which meant the material advantage was now negated this momentum change had given Cardona a small window in which to operate. On May 19th, Cardona sent a telegram to Tsar Nicholas, begging the Russians to mount an offensive in Glacier or Bukovina to draw off the Austrians. Conrad may have thought he had all the time in the world, but the reality was once Stavka got hold of the Italian request, Austria-Hungary would have just two weeks to secure Rome's surrender. Meanwhile, Events elsewhere would set the stage for what would become the most severe crisis the Central Powers would face in the war thus far. As the fighting in Tyrol raged, we must not forget that the bloodletting at Verdun had continued without interruption since February of that year. So we're going to leave the Austrians there for now, and pivot ourselves back west, and end off today looking at two developments which occurred congruently with the Austrian attack, the promotion of Philippe Bétain and the failed attempt to retake Fort Douaumont. Since the opening attack on February the 21st, the fighting at Verdun had settled into ebb and flow. With relentless artillery exchanges and murderous small-scale assaults, the French and Germans pounded and smashed each other into oblivion. The ground churned into a heap of stinking mud, perfumed with the smell of nitrates, chlorine gas, and the twisted corpses of man and beast. Although the German advance had been contained by the end of March, the guns continued firing round the clock, as more men were fed into the Maelstrom. By the end of April, the Meuse-Melle had already consumed some 131,000 Frenchmen, compared to 120,000 German. Falkenhayn's plan to bleed the French white at the gates of Verdun was equally matched with France's resolve to hold the citadel at all costs. Both sides remained locked in the furious dance. By late spring, with the operations on the west bank of the Meuse having faltered, the fighting shifted back east, near the area of Fort Douaumont. By this point, Fort Douaumont, the centerpiece of Verdun's defensive ring, shared a closer resemblance to a pile of concrete slabs than a fortress. Artillery had taken its toll. Chunks of the wall were missing, redoubts had collapsed, and the anti-infantry trenches had been uprooted and filled with earth. Despite its smoldering husk, Douaumont remained a crucial position for both armies. For one, its value as an observation post was unmatched, and secondly, the German capture of the fort on February 25th had been a humiliating setback for the french and by april they were determined to win it back beginning on may the 22nd just one week after the austrian offensive at trentino the french 5th infantry division suffered heavy losses in a failed attempt to retake the fort the ill-fated attack came just as the second army was undergoing a change of regime which would have important consequences not just for the french army at verdun but for the whole allied war effort on the 1st of may Pétain received a special promotion from Joff, which saw him bump from command of the Second Army, in place at the head of Army Group Centre. In other words, Peytan would no longer be at the front, but would have indirect control of the battle from his new headquarters at bar le duc a commune just a few kilometres south of Verdun itself. While the official story was that Peytan was being rewarded for his stellar service, it was obvious to those paying attention that Peytan had fallen from Joff's favour. The French commander-in-chief needed a victory at Verdun, and he felt that Pétain's defensive strategy was too conservative. Needless to say, this led to a disagreement between the two men, and Pétain found himself unwillingly promoted. To take over from Pétain, Joff gave the reins of the 2nd Army to General Robert Névelle. Nivelle, who was most famous for his failed 1917 Nivelle offensive, which sparked widespread mutiny in the French ranks, was cut from a much different cloth than Pétain. A firm believer in the spirit of attack, Nivelle promised to deliver the victory Joffre wanted. But he was not about to go it alone. His hatchet man was Charles Mangan, a tough colonial officer who had the reputation of being one of the most brutal and feared generals in the French army. Together, Nivelle and Mangan would push the 2nd Army to the very brink, and their influence was immediately felt. Soon after their arrival on May the 1st, 1916, Pétain's Bucket Brigade system, that is the policy of rotation where men were cycled in and out of the firing line, was abandoned. The new command duo was eager to strike back, and their immediate prize was Fort Duamond. What encouraged Neville and Mangan to retake Duomont was a particularly grisly event which took place on May the 8th. In the early afternoon, a series of explosions caused by an unknown source racked the depths of the fort. The flames soon spread to the munition storage, igniting hand grenades, canisters of petrol, and a magazine of artillery shells. 650 German soldiers died in total darkness, either seared by flames or blown to pieces. The colossal plume of smoke which rose from the fortress was an undeniable sign that it was ripe for the taking. Beginning on May the 16th, French batteries pummeled Duamond with a blanket of steel. Megan was confident that the 300 guns, supplemented by the arrival of new 370 millimeter heavy mortars, would be enough to send the German garrison running for the hills. For the Germans inside the fort, the dust and fumes made the air unbreathable. Some panicked and ran into the open, only to be eviscerated by shellfire. But as the French continued the cannonade, they had sacrificed the element of surprise, and the German defenders soon had their sight zeroed on the French positions. 35 minutes before the French pressed the attack, two German shells scored a direct hit on the French line. For experienced veterans... This was a warning that the Germans knew they were coming. As the regiments went over top, they were immediately hit with accurate counterfire, which cut the first waves to pieces. While the center thrust of the attack managed to fight its way to the fort walls, the supporting attacks on the flanks were quickly pinned down. With their flanks exposed, the forward units found themselves taking counterfire from three sides. Some attempted to scale the roof or enter through a blasted out shell hole but were immediately checked with vicious hand-to-hand combat and small-arms fire from inside the fort. Just two days after the attack, on May the 24th, Mangan called a halt to the offensive. Out of the 12,000 men of the 5th Division, 5,600 became casualties. The failure to retake Douaumont was a blow in which the French almost never recovered. In Paris, memories of the 1870 humiliation began to resurface. Are we going to be caught in a mousetrap? the presses asked. Every French man and woman was wondering the same thing. Two days later, May the 26th, Joff met with British General Sir Douglas Haig, pleading to the BEF commander that if the planned Anglo-French offensive on the Somme waited until the 15th of August as it was scheduled, then the French army would cease to exist. Haig, knowing all too well that a French collapse would mean a lost war, begrudgingly agreed to move the Somme offensive ahead by six weeks, now scheduled to begin on July the 1st. At the same time, however, with French morale at a near low, Erich von Falkenhayn believed that the time to crush France was at hand. Eager to retake the offensive, the Germans set their sights on the extreme right of the French line, near Fort Vaux, one of the last forts on the West Bank which remained in French hands. So it was at this critical moment, with the Austrians pushing southwards into Trentino and the Germans about to retake the Verdun offensive, that the survival of the Entente hung in the balance. But with all eyes on Verdun and Tyrol, no one was watching the Russians. And on June the 4th, just as the Germans closed on Fort Vaux, 650,000 Russian soldiers under Alexei Brusilov, backed by 2,000 guns, would smash their way into Glacia, tearing the heart out of the Austrian army and leaving it incapacitated. With his remaining troops snared in the Alps, Conrad was unable to plug the hole, and had to beg Falkenhayn for reinforcements. The German chief would comply scaling back operations at Verdun to meet the eastern threat. Brusilov's steamroller would buy the Entente precious time, and on July 1st, the long-anticipated Anglo-French attack on the Somme would bring the Allied war effort to a violent crescendo, throwing the central powers into complete disarray. The Great War of Attrition was about to arrive. Unfortunately, the details of the Russian offensive will have to wait for a few more episodes because just as the titanic battles in the land war were getting underway, the war at sea was reaching its zenith. After two years of sizing each other up, the battle fleets of Great Britain and Germany would finally meet in a clash off the Danish coast. Nearly 250 warships of all sizes, from dreadnoughts to destroyers, would take part in the long-awaited showdown between the two great powers. For those who lived through the ordeal, it is remembered by two names. For the Germans, Skagerak, the British the Battle of Jutland. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send me an email at thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. Again, that is thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. I want to thank listener Casey Cole, who generously donated to the show. Thank you very much for your donation, Casey. If you want to be like Casey and our other generous donors, you'll find the donate button on the homepage. There is no limit to your donation, but every little bit helps and goes a long way to keeping the show going. Or, look us up on iTunes in the Apple Store and write a quick 5-star review, which will help keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to continue churning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.